every week we go to the Bible. Every week we go to the Bible. Because we believe that the Bible is the true living word of God. There have been surveys done in America. And it asks the question, how do Christians grow in their faith and maturity? And the number one thing is not dinners or programs or, you know, prayer meetings or, or you know, courses. It's not that. The number one factor for growth in understanding who God is and maturity, uh, spiritual maturity is engagement with the Word of God. And that's why we go to the Bible every week. I could tell you my opinion, but that's not going to take you very far in life. It's actually going to ruin you. And that's why we go to the Bible. And, and I start with this because we're about to start a new series tonight in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. Okay. Um, I'm going I'm to read Revelation 1, 1 to 8, and we're going to spend a few months in just a few of these chapters, um, which is going to be exciting. So let's read Revelation 1, 1 to 8. Hopefully it's on the screen. Here we go. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. All right. We'll just pause there. How's that? All right. So at the end, uh, at the beginning of every series, um, I asked my wife to come and pray, and she forgot because she's on her phone reading. Don't look. I told you, honey. My wife's going to come and pray. <laughs> Everyone, this is my wife, mother of four children. First, first of her name. <laughs> Here you go, honey. You forgot, eh? You forgot. Let's pray, church. Uh, Father God, we commit um, just this season into your hands as we go into the book of Revelations. Lord, I pray that um, yeah, you would teach us uh, your ways and your truth. God, um, despite perhaps a difficulty in understanding the text, Lord, would you make clear your truths um, and give us understanding in your spirit? Um, Would you really just enlighten our heart, our minds, and our souls so that we may be challenged, Lord, um, that in in this day, Lord, that we would be able to um, live um, according to your word and surrendered to your will. Uh, God be with Pastor Steve as he preaches through this text, um, that you would give him deeper insight and revelation. And Lord, we pray for the life groups as they go through um, these passages, um, that you would also yeah, really just illuminate the word um, in the life groups so that your people may have just a deeper revelation of who you are and your love for us. Uh, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Mother of dragons. 
Did you? Can you tell I finished Game of Thrones the other day? <laughs> anyway, um, we are starting a brand new book, um, Book of Revelation, and over the next um, eight weeks, uh, we're going to go through it. Can I just tell you? Let's. Tonight's going to be a little bit of a mix. It's going to be a bit of an introduction to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And then we're going to look at um, chapter 1. And then over the next seven weeks, we're going to go through chapter 2 and 3. Now, Revelation is the single most handed, complicated, and, and, and confusing book of the Bible. It is single-handedly caused the most controversy and division inside and outside the church. Revelation is so complex, you can add up all the complexities in all the other 65 books of the Bible, and it does not equal, it doesn't equal how complicated Revelation is. Right? Now, because it's so complicated and because it's so confusing, right, there are two extremes that people go to when they read the book of Revelation. And we need to be very careful in the way we read it. The first extreme is this. Because because it's such a different book, some people, they elevate this book because it's a supernatural, super spiritual book. And what they've done is they elevate Revelation over all the other books of the Scripture. And what they do is they, they just focus in just on the end times. And what they do is they'll go and sell everything and they move to a cave and then they just sort of wait for the return of Jesus. Right now, this is really extreme, and this is really dangerous because they've just made this more than what it needs to be. Okay, and I would say that probably in our community we don't have as many people in that extreme. But knowing our community, we probably get stuck in the other extreme, and that is this: Revelation is too hard. Revelation is irrelevant. Revelation is too complex, too confusing. Hence, just ignore it. Let's just study 65 books of the Bible. But the problem with that is that is, as, that is as bad as the first extreme. We believe, we believe that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, that every word, every book is in the Bible for a reason, and every book is as important as the other. And that's why we're going to be studying the book of Revelation, okay? So don't be like... Why are we studying this? Okay. It's hard. I'm going to tell you it's hard. You know, it's hard for me too because I have to study this. Okay. Okay. So the best way to give an intro to this is not do it myself. Let's go to a video. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cut the video. I'm just letting you know. I'm going to cut the video when I'm ready. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalupsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. 
And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has okay. a vision of God's heaven. Pause there, because that's where we're going to go to. We're going to go to chapter 3, and then next year... You have to wait. You have to come back to church next year. And we're going to finish off Revelations. It's the longest cliffhanger ever. Now, there are three key words in understanding what the book of Revelation is about. And they were mentioned in that video. Number one, the word apocalypse. Okay, apocalypse. Verse 1 and 2, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word revelation, as said in the video, is the word, is the Greek word apokalaus, which simply means the removal of a cover from something hidden or unveiling something that was concealed. Right? Think about it. Reveal. Right? Something to be revealed. Something, something was hidden and it is revealed. 
Now, we think of the word apocalypse, and straight away we think of words like Armageddon and the end of times. And we, we, we take apocalypse as a very um, negative word. But in the day that this book was written, and to the audience that was listening to this, apocalypse was actually a very common word. Okay, so don't get freaked out on the word apocalypse. Okay, I know that movie, there's a movie called Apocalypse, scary movie. Can't watch the whole thing, it's too scary. It's not like that. The, another thing that uh, was in, uh, mentioned in the video was the word apocalypse is also stating the genre of the writing of the author. Now, in the Bible, we have many different types of writing. We have stories, we have biography, we have poetry, and we have what we call apocalyptic writing, right? And, and, and the video tells us that apocalyptic writing was a record of a prophet's dreams and visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. Okay? So that's what apocalyptic literature is. You need to understand that it's not a story, it's not a narrative, it's not something that's already happened, it's not poetry. And this is going to become really important actually next year when, when we get into some, a little bit more of the, the furry stuff in Revelation, like this year shouldn't be too bad, but next year I'm going to have to do this all again and sort of explain it again, but I'm just putting this out there. The second important word that we need to understand when we uh, look at the, the book of Revelation is the word prophecy. Now, prophecy, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, <clears throat> excuse me, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Prophecy in the New Testament can be described as words of spirit guiding preachers and the church through which God's revealed purpose for the world and his will for humankind are revealed. What I do on Sunday when I preach is what I'm doing is I'm taking what God's heart and God's desire is and I'm sharing it to you. Now that is New Testament prophecy, okay? Um, it's just taking what God's heart and God's will is and sharing it with his people. Now, sometimes this can come in a form of encouragement, like, good job, you're doing a great job, you know, you know keep going. But also, sometimes it can come as a word of warning. Be careful, because I think what you're doing is maybe not right. Um, quote, the book of Revelation conveys the assurance that the opposition of human beings and of all powers of evil cannot frustrate God's purpose for the world that he has made. And in the light of this, the call goes out for persistence in faith and obedience to the Lord on the part of the people. Okay, so apocalypse, prophecy, and the last word, and it's really important, is the word letter. Okay, verse 4 to 6, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. Okay, I'm not going to read the rest, but this is a letter that John writes to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor, I don't know if I, did I put up a map? No. Okay, Asia Minor, uh, which, was, which is the territory name, is modern-day Turkey, right? So we're going to go through, the, the, Jesus is going to write seven letters to seven churches, and these churches are not, they're not theoretical cities. They're actually places that exist in Turkey right now. Okay, and uh, what the importance that why we need to understand this is is because Jesus is writing a letter to these churches, and so what Jesus is going to write to in in Revelations is first and foremost, firstly, is for the churches, and then is for us. It's not to say that it's not important to us or irrelevant to us. It is relevant to us, but first and foremost, it was for them. Okay, and that's going to be really important. 
Because the book is directed to the situation and the needs of the churches. Okay? Now, as I said, we're only going to look at three chapters over the next two, two months. Okay? Which is a little bit more straightforward. The rest of Revelation is the real furry stuff. Okay? Um, and we're going we're gonna to do that next year. But I want to just make three really quick notes. Okay? First thing is this. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not real. Okay? Okay, I'm talking about scripture. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not real. Like how many of us really understand how the Sydney water sewage system works? I'd say none of us, but you flush the toilet and something disappears, okay? So it's real. Okay, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's real. It's as real as it gets. Just because revelations can be hard and difficult doesn't mean that it's not real, okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. When we approach Scripture, especially Scripture that might be a little bit difficult to understand, we need to approach them uh, with, with humility, recognizing that we lack understanding. It's not God's Word that is lacking you know, clarity. It's us that lacks the understanding. And therefore, we need to have the humility to say, I don't understand it all. But also have the humility to ask God, God, speak to me even in my limited understanding. And the final thing is this. This is personal. I don't know everything. We're going to read this book. You're going to have questions. I already have those questions. You're going to have questions. I'm going to have questions. You're going to come and ask me for answers. And I'm going to say, go to speak, speak to Pastor May. Okay? <laughs> And then she'll say, oh, I don't know if I have the answers or not, but she's smarter than me. So. And it's okay. I'm learning through this too. Okay? I'm going to confess. I've been preaching for 15 years. This is the first time that I'm doing revelations, revelation as a series. You can understand it's a little bit of a big project, even for me. Okay? So I look forward to getting into today's sermon. Now, E.F. Scott writes, the book was written to strengthen the faith and courage of John's fellow believers in Christ, to nerve them for battle with anti-Christian forces in the world, and to help them bear witness to the one true Lord and Savior of the world. See, in first, cent first century, right, Jesus has, has died, has risen, has gone back to heaven, and the church has grown. But Christianity is growing, but the early church is facing persecution like never before. The Roman Empire, which was the ruling empire at the time, they are putting Christians into place, into an awkward place where they are uh, putting them and saying, you either worship Jesus or you worship the emperor Caesar. And depending on how you answer that question, you would pretty much you would either live or die. Worship Jesus or worship Caesar? We think, wow, that happened 2,000 years ago, but it sounds very similar to what we go through today, isn't it? That's the question that we struggle with today. Do we worship Jesus? Do we live for Jesus? Or do we live for the world? Do we live for ourselves? So in this series, we're going to look at uh, Jesus addressing seven churches. But tonight, before we get to those seven letters and the letters to the churches, we're going to start with one really simple question. And it's this, who is God? Who is God? And And... I'm going to just look at uh, two sections of, of this chapter, and, and we're going to look at just one snippet, okay? And the first verse I want to look at is, is chapter 1, verse 8, and it reads this, I am the Alpha 
And the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then verse 17 and 18, and this is Jesus speaking, and he's saying, when I saw him, and this is John speaking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, this is Jesus speaking, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. Now, for those that don't know what Alpha and Omega is, Alpha is the first letter of the ancient Greek alphabet. Okay? And Omega, okay, is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So ultimately, what God is saying is, I am the A to the Z. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first to the last. And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. I am the first and the last. So many people believe in God, but they don't believe that Jesus is God too. We're going to go into that too much, but they are saying the same thing, that God is the first and God is the last. Now, this is where I want to pause tonight. And I want us to just think about this for a moment, okay? Let's think about this. God is the alpha, Okay, God is the beginning. Okay, now for those that have grown up in the church, Genesis 1 1, right? Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was, uh, was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. You know, so many times when you teach this in primary school to children, Right? You, you teach, right? Genesis 1. What do we teach? We teach creation. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the sun and the moon stars. God created the animals, the birds, the bees. You know, God created all this. God created all this. God created all this. And there's always that one kid. What's the question that one kid always asks, right? Come on, Albert Jang. You, 100% you ask this when you're in primary school. Who created God? Who created God? And that kid never got to eat dinner at camp, did he? No. <laughs> Who created God? Good question, right? If God created everything, well, who created God? Well, if God was in the beginning, God created, if God was there from the beginning, what was there before God? And the simple answer to that is this, nothing. There was no such thing. There is never a time before the existence of God because God <laughs> is the first. That's what we say. That's what it means by when we say God is the first. Okay? There is nothing behind that. There's nothing before that. I know this is really hard for us to understand. But think about it like this. There was a time, usually imagine it, there was a time when, and this is what the, the scripture tells us, the planet earth the way we knew it, there was a time where the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the day, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the world. There was a time where the world that we live in did not look like the world that, that, that we see. You know, the globe that we have, there was a time where the, the earth was dark, formless, and empty. It's like uh, for an artist to take a brand new piece of canvas before you paint all the colors on it. It was just blank. I know it's hard for us to understand, right? But to go half, even more, a step further is actually there was a time where there was no canvas at all. There was a time where there was no physical earth at all. 
But what was there? God. Psalm 90 verse 2 writes, From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. Now, we can argue for how creation came about, the Big Bang Theory. We can talk about the theory of evolution. But the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was the creator. No one created God. God was not created out of something, but it was God who created everything. So I think for most of us, we kind of understand that, especially if you've grown up in the church, you kind of get that. In the beginning, there was God. And then you kind of just sort of, you know, you stop asking questions because you come to a place where you go, okay, God, everything started with God. Okay, so if that's God is the Alpha, then, then but what we need to understand is there's a second part of that verse, is, and that is God is the Omega. God is the last. God is the end. Now, the end is not something that, that we think about a lot. Still, for a lot of us, the end, whatever that end might look like, is a very theoretical concept to us. You know, not many of us really think about death. Not many, think, not many of us really think about, well, what happens after, you know, um, you know we die? Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, talk and there's a lot of um, movement around the health of our planet. Right? And so some people are thinking, well, what happens in a thousand years' time when we use up all of the natural resources in our community and then all the greenies said, amen. You know, like, you know, like all, you know, but we don't really think about that. But what happens is the book of Revelation is going to start to paint some pictures of some glimpses of what the end of the world is going to look like. Now, this is where a lot of the confusing stuff comes. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. It's, it's really confusing. And for me to tell you I fully understand it and I know exactly what's going to happen would be a complete lie. That's why we're doing this next year. Give me a little bit of time to work it out. Right? And probably 100%. Even when we get there, I probably, I probably won't know either. Right? But here's the thing. It's confusing. Christians are divided on how the end's going to look. Christians are divided on, on the way it's going to end. But the one thing that Christians are not divided, they are united on this one truth, that the, at the end, God will be there. Now, how we get there, what it's going to look like, and when it's going to happen is all speculation. We'll look a little bit about that in, in, in Scripture next year. But the truth, the one fact is, at the end, God will be there. The physical earth will cease and God will be there. The last man will die and yet God will be there. He is the Omega. He is the last. He is the end. This is not disputable fact. This is what the Bible tells to us. And this is what I want to share with you tonight. This is what I believe that we need to understand. Not only is God the Alpha, okay, as I said, most of us get that. Most of us will accept that and we're fine with that. But a lot of us forget that not only is He the beginning, but He's the end as well. Now, why is this important? Why is it important for us to understand that God is not just the beginning, but He's the end? Not only is He the first, but He's the last. And I want to finish with three things that are important. If God is the beginning and God is the end, right, there are three things that we need to think about. First one is this, perspective. 
See, we live in our lives, we, we live our lives, okay, let's be honest, we live our lives as if we are the center of the universe. And as much as science tells us that the earth rotates, or the moon rotates around the earth, and the, the, the earth rotates around the sun, and the sun is the center of this galaxy, and blah, 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 blah. No, that's a lie. For you, you are the center of your galaxy. Isn't that the truth? If they made a movie or a Korean drama about you, you would be the main character. Either you get hit by a bus, get cancer, go to uh, some you know, elite you know, university. I don't know what's going on these days in Korean dramas, but you are the main character. That's the point. But when we understand that God was there from the beginning and that God was there in the end and that you're actually just a part of his story, we start to realize that maybe there's something more than just me. Maybe there's something greater than just me. Friends, can I tell you, you are a part of God's story, not God a part of yours. You don't come to church and, and, and your faith and your beliefs and your religion and, and whatever you think, and, and you, you don't come to church and you put God into your life, you know, God on Sunday and then work on Monday. That's, that's what we do, but the reality is that's, that's not real. That's not right. Because before you were even born, God existed. And even after you die, God will be there. So how is it that you're the center? You're not. We need perspective. We need real perspective. Second thing is this, accountability. We need to understand that we exist in God's story. And because we exist in God's story, not God existing in ours, because God is the center and we are part of his narrative, that, that we, there will be a time and a place where we will need to account to Him our lives. We will need to explain to our God why we lived our lives the way we did. Romans 14, 12 says, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. That God is the beginning and the end, and we are just one part of it. It is a reminder that the way we conduct ourselves, whether by word, deed, action, or thought, it matters, and it matters to God. And one day, we will need to explain ourselves before the eternal God. And here's the thing. There are consequences. Don't think that you can live in this life. You can live in the story of God, that God lets you live and, and exist in His story and have no consequences. No, there's, there's plenty of consequences. Revelation 21, 6 to 8. And we're going to get to this in a big way next year, but... Here we go. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning soft. This is the second death. These are the consequences. Now, what that means, what's the second death and the fiery lake of burning sulfur and all that, we'll deal with that next year. <laughs> it feels like a little bit of a cop-out, this sermon, eh? But the point is this, the point is not that. The point is there are consequences that you need to understand will come 
through the way you live your life. And finally, the realization that God is the beginning and the end should affect the way that we think about our time, our time on earth. We need to realize the reality that our time on earth is limited. Our time on earth is limited. There will be an end. I know that you don't think like that. I know that you don't live like that. No one wakes up thinking, man, I only got like, you know, five more years to go. I only got like 50, you know, 50 years to go. You know, no one really thinks like that. But the reality is, Every single one of us is running on a clock. And no one knows when that clock's going to stop. But the life that we live will not go on forever. Whether it be the return of Jesus, whether it be the end of our physical lives, what you need to know is there is an end. And knowing that there is an end, Knowing that there is an end of our existence physically on earth, what it should do is encourage us to make the most of the life we have today. Isn't that the truth? Aren't we so reckless with our lives because we feel like we've got the rest of our lives to live? Uh, I I realize this with um, my children. my oldest child is in year six, going into year seven. He's 12. And I was thinking about this the other day. I've only got six more years. Six more years with this child until he becomes 18 and he's an adult and he's going to go and live his life as an adult. I've only got six more years. It, feel, it feels like forever, right? But actually, if you think of it like that, it's six years. Our church has been... Six years, just, it's just that double. And I realized, oh, wow, I've only got six more years. I need to invest, I need to do more with him before he will leave my nest. See, only when you realize that the end is there, only when you realize that time is limited, will you start making the most of your today. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. This is who God is. So tonight as we uh, start our, our journey in the early part of the book of Revelation, I believe God wants to remind us all of who He is. That He's the first and the last and the beginning and the end. And that we are not the center of our universe. But we're in God's story. Because he's everlasting to everlasting. Let's pray.